Well, I invite you to open your Bibles up to First Chronicles. Finished Matthew a couple weeks back, and let's just put to rest any guessing about where we're going next. Back to the Old Testament, back to the Hebrew Scriptures, to the book of First Chronicles. We'll begin in chapter 1. As you're turning there, I just wanted to um, just say a word of thanks to you all for prayers and encouragement and emails and everything that you've sent to our family uh, ever since we, really since we started the process of adoption and, and in being in Ghana, um, it's, it was an awesome trip, John and Lisa can tell you. I mean, one of the most surreal moments was sitting there in the hotel room, the Hotel Obama, I kid you not, <laughs> sitting in the Hotel Obama with John and Lisa uh, <laughs> and having dinner together. You know, in Africa, it was just it was just mind blowing to to even be there. It was a great week and uh, some incredible experiences. A lot of um, things that I'm just going to hold to myself. I have a tendency to spill and share an awful lot about family, and and I got to be careful with our with our three newest kids. Um, I just want to protect their their privacy a bit until they've been around me long enough for me to share embarrassing things about them. But thank you all so much just for your for your prayers and I. Um, we invite and, and uh, covet any, any prayers that you offer, especially on the behalf of our three kids. I was thinking during communion how amazing it is. You know, we go through this process of adoption, and for those who are not adopting, one of the comments that we've gotten a lot is how wonderful a thing it is that, that we're doing in adopting. And my reaction and my response to that is, is you have no idea how wonderful it is for us. You know, we're the ones that are being blessed here. We're not doing any great thing. And as a matter of fact, when I think about Jesus and how he adopted us all into his family, I have yet to die for any of my three new children. I have yet to shed my blood. So if you think that the process of adopting someone is a wonderful thing, Think about what Jesus did, what He went through for each one of us to call us His own, to make us His children. That, that is the wonderful thing. Now, we're going to begin First Chronicles, and um, if you've done any reading ahead in this book, you know that, well, there are a lot of names. Let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 1, First Chronicles. Adam, which is always a good place to start. Seth... Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Diphath, and Togarma. The sons of Javan were Elisha, and Tarshish, Ketim, and Rodanim. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sapta, Rayama, and Saptika. And the sons of Rayama were Sheba and Dedan. Cush became the father of Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. Mitzrayim became the father of the people of Lud, Anam, Lehab, Nephta, Pathras, Kasla, from which the Philistines came, and Kaphtar. Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn Heth. And the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemorites, the Hamathites, the Termites, the Flashlights, the Megabites. The sons of Shem were Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Meshech. Arpachshad became the father of Shelah, and Shelah became the father of Eber. Two sons, and by the way, Eber... Scholars think Eber is where the word Hebrew actually comes from. And the Hebrew people being a Semitic or Shemitic people. So the two sons that were born to Eber, one had the name of Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan became the father of Almadad, Shelech, Hazarmeth, Mavet, Jera, Hadaram, Uzzel, Dikla, Ebal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. And Jobab, some believe, may actually be Job after the book or who, who uh, the book of Job is written about. All these were sons of Joktan. Shem, Arpachshad, Shelah, Eber, Peleg, Ru, Sereg, Nahar, Terah, Abram, that is Abraham. 
nations. Now the sons of Abraham were Isaac and Ishmael. These are their genealogies. The firstborn of Ishmael was Nebaioth, and then Cater, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Measa, Hadad, Tima, Jetir, Nafish, Kadima. These were the sons of Ishmael. The sons of Keturah, Abraham's concubine, whom she bore, were Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. And the sons of Jokshan were Sheba and Dedan. Sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Eldeah. And all these were the sons of Keturah. Abraham became the father of Isaac. And the sons of Isaac were Esau and Israel. Okay, that's halfway through chapter 1. Let's pray and we'll go forward. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You, Lord, that You and Your wisdom and your, Your perfect planning laid down exactly what You wanted written in this book. And so, Father, because of that, we pray that You will open our eyes to truth and understanding. That You will once again draw our hearts in to this book as seekers bent on not only knowledge, Father, but on knowing You as our Lord and Savior. May our eyes be opened to Jesus. May we see Him here as we have seen Him in so many places throughout Scripture. And we pray this morning, Father, for understanding by Your Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, and who will bring all things to memory that You have taught us. Lord, seed these things into our hearts today. By Your Spirit we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. So this morning we return to the Hebrew Scriptures in our study through the Bible. Over the course of the past five years, if you've been here, you know we've now studied Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Torah, first five books. We continued on in Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, and 1st and 2nd Kings. All those we've covered, we've studied, we've gone through. From the New Testament, we've studied the book of Revelation, and we just completed Matthew, but today we go back. Now you might ask, comparatively, why have we spent such an inordinate amount of time in the Old Testament? Rick, are you a new, an Old Testament church? Is it your, your purpose, your plan for the Bridge Fellowship to be all about the Hebrew Scriptures, to kind of be a, a messianic thing? Is, is that what you're about? Not at all. Let me give you some reasons why we've spent the time we've spent in the Hebrew Scriptures. First of all, we are invited to know the whole Word of God. The whole Word of God, not just the New Testament. The New Testament would not exist if not for the Old Testament. It's not two separate books. As I grew up honestly believing and thinking, there was the Old Testament, which is for the Jews, and we read it for the history, and that's interesting and fine, but there's the New Testament for the Christians, and that's just not true. The whole Word of God is for believers in Messiah. From Genesis through Revelation, this entire book was given for us to understand. Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. We see throughout the writings of the apostles and even in the gospels this focus on the Hebrew scriptures. In fact, remembering that in the first century church, there was no New Testament. It was simply being written as time went on. When they studied the Scriptures, they were in what we call the Old Testament. I prefer to call it the Older Testament. Because old just implies that it's dusty and useless, but it is incredibly useful for us. So we're invited to know the whole Word of God. Secondly, without the Old Testament, as I said, there would be no New Testament. Paul said in Romans 9 verse 4, To the Israelites belong the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, who are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is overall God-blessed forever. Amen. Without the Old Testament, there would be no New Testament. Number three, without an appreciation, and please hear this, Without an appreciation of the story of God's people, the Jews, we will fail to appreciate the importance of God's people, the Jews. What many churches gloss over and don't see is the significance of Israel in God's program, in God's plan. Romans chapter 11, verse 18, Paul said, Do not be arrogant toward the branches, that is Israel. But if you are arrogant, remember it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Look ahead in 1 Chronicles to chapter 17. 
First Chronicles chapter 17 and verse 7. When we read the story that David has had in his heart and his mind to build a house for the Lord, he looks around, his kingdom is secure, he is at peace, and he's built a, a tremendous house for himself, a palace. His city is built, the city of David, and he now says, I want to build you a house, Lord. Verse 7 of chapter 17, we hear some of God's response. Therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be leader over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a name like like the name of the great ones who are in the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and not be moved again. And the wicked will not waste them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you. My people Israel. God will say that phrase over and over. My people Israel. And He is so serious about the importance of His people Israel, as He calls them, that over a thousand years earlier, He promised Abraham these words. Genesis 12.3, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Jesus said, in that great parable of the sheep and the goats, Matthew 25, verse 40, He said, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, speaking, I believe, of Israel, even the least of them, you did it to me. He says in verse 45, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to at least to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Here's the real problem. When we fail to appreciate... The important place of God's people Israel in God's economy, ignorant, satanic, anti-Semitism begins to rise. And that's been a problem that the church has experienced in past decades. In fact, in America, though Israel was was instrumental even in the founding of this nation, though, though even George Washington in the fight of independence was funded by a Jewish man who gave up everything that he had to fund that war, to produce the independence of our country, our country has had a tendency to veer off track. Now you may know and you may have heard today that the the United States of America is Israel's best friend in the world, but that friendship is on shaky ground. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is coming to meet this week with Barack Obama for the first time, and they are at odds as to what they believe needs to be done in the Middle East. It will be interesting to see what happens. But back in the 1920s, three books came on the American scene which began to spread widespread fear among Americans and mistrust toward the American Jew. The first book was called The Protocols of Zion. It was a a book written in Russia during the pogroms in Russia against the Jews, those those terrible times when the Jews were being driven out of different different homes and villages and lands. If you've seen the, the movie Fiddler on the Roof, it's based on that concept. Jewish community of people driven out by the Russian persecution. Well, this book, The Protocols of Zion, was a spurious book, again, written in Russian, translated into English, and brought into America in the 1920s, and it blamed the Jewish people for everything wrong with the world. The Protocols of Zion was made into a three-part movie, and gang, this movie is still played today in the Arab world, especially in Egypt, as anti-Semitic propaganda fear-mongering that the Jews are going to take over, spurring a hatred of Israel. The second book that came out in the 1920s was called, called The Cause of World Unrest. And it blamed the Jewish people for the Bolshevik Revolution, and this book stated that that was actually a massive Jewish underground effort to destroy all of Christendom. The Cause of World Unrest. The third book that came out was called The International Jew. Selling in the millions in just a few short years, this book claimed that the Jewish people intended to take over the world through financial means. That in their financial wizardry, they were going to conquer the world, and it warned against them. Interesting, this book, The International Jew, was written by none other than legendary American automobile icon Henry Ford. 
who was himself anti-Semitic. He was forced to stop printing the book in 1927, but by then great damage was done and there was a severe mistrust of the Jews. I've asked the question before, why is it that this one people group has been so singled out throughout all of history in every country in which they've resided as a danger or a threat? There's only one reason that makes any sense of it all, and that is it is a satanic move against my people Israel, against the people of the Lord. Now, something amazing happened in 1948 when Israel pronounced their independence. The first nation on the scene, the first president, by the way, against, against the advice of the State Department, President Truman stepped out and recognized Israel as a nation. And I believe that move and that friendship is at the source of American prosperity for the last 60 years. Because we stood up For God's people, God said, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And every time a nation has cursed Israel or turned against Israel or turned their back on Israel, you can see a decline in that nation's power. And yet the United States grew to to the greatest nation in the history of the world. Greatest in influence, greatest in prosperity, greatest across the board militarily. This nation in which we live has been the greatest Having some problems these days, aren't we? And some struggles. And I believe the reason for our country's waning power and the threat to prosperity is, gang, as we turn our back on Israel, politically, militarily, and spiritually, we will see a superpower begin to die. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And so we see the importance of understanding the people of Israel. There's one more reason to be well informed with the Older Testament Scriptures, and it's what I believe to be the most important reason of all. Without this Hebraic foundation, we will at best misunderstand. And at worst, we will completely miss the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Through Christ comes the blessing of Abraham. The promise that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him, through his seed, son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And Bible students, don't forget that great prophetic statement by the Spirit of Jesus Himself, spoken even before the New Testament was written. Psalm 40, verse 7, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of Me. So we return to the Older Testament, to the book of 1 Chronicles. Now, Hebrew tradition holds the writer of 1 and 2 Chronicles was Ezra the scribe, and so we won't dispute that. In fact, 1 and 2 Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah, all four of those books, what we have is four different books, were one book originally. One scroll that, again, we believe was written by Ezra. And in 1 Chronicles, we have this opening line. We see the genealogy of the line of Adam all the way down to Abraham. Now, if you look ahead, you're going to see across the first nine chapters of 1 Chronicles, it is one long, continuous genealogy. The author of 1 Chronicles traces a genealogy all the way down to David and the people living in Jerusalem. Nine chapters of genealogy. And I can tell you honestly, I have not looked forward to figuring out how to teach this. How are we supposed to... You know, in my, in my flesh, my assumption was, boy, the next two Wednesday nights are going to be lean. Because who wants to sit and listen to names read one after the other, genealogy after genealogy? It's interesting that after the genealogies, the book of Chronicles closely then follows the line of the, king, of the kings of Judah. And you might say, well, Rick, we already studied that. We went through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, all the way through from, from King Saul, the beginning of Israel, down to the last king and the deportation to Babylon. We've studied it. We've covered it. Why go back now? As First and Second Chronicles do, First Chronicles chronicling the life of David, Second Chronicles then chronicling all of the kings of Judah. And as we ask that question, why does the Bible turn around and repeat itself with these two books? You might think if there are any two books in the Bible, I would just leave out. It's First and Second Chronicles because they're unnecessary. 
In fact, it's interesting that the Greek translators of the Septuagint, they gave First and Second Chronicles the name Things Omitted. Because even as you read it, there are things in it that are left out that we find in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. Significant things. You won't find the story of David and Bathsheba even listed in First and Second Chronicles. I would think that would be a big story to list. And yet what's interesting is as you read the two, Samuel and Kings versus Chronicles, in Samuel and Kings we get a man's view, a man's eye, a human view of the kings of Israel and Judah. When you come to First and Second Chronicles, you get a God's eye perspective and God does not hold the sin of Bathsheba, David and Bathsheba, against them. He has forgiven and forgotten and thus it's not even in the text. J. Vernon McGee wrote the following. He said, The policy of the Holy Spirit in giving the Word of God is to give a great expanse of truth, to cover a great deal of territory, then to come back and select certain sections which He wants to enlarge upon. Another way of putting it is, the Spirit of God moves from telescope to microscope in detailing the truths and the stories that He wants us to acutely focus in on. My point is this, that while Ezra may have been the, the writer of the books of Chronicles, he was not the author. And we've seen this and talked about this every, every book we've studied. The author is the Spirit of Christ. The author is not the man. And there is an intentionality in the writing of First and Second Chronicles. Jesus doesn't do things haphazardly. First Peter chapter 1, verse 10 says, The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Peter also wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. If that's the truth, and I believe it is, if God inspired, breathed, authored all the books that we have in Scripture, then we should place no less weight, no less importance on First and Second Chronicles than we do on the book of Revelation or on the book of Matthew. My friends, I hope this is true for you. It is for me. We should be as excited about heading into these two books as we've been about any study in the Scriptures so far. We tend to get a buzz when it comes to prophecy. I know when we get to the book of Isaiah, there are going to be many people saying, Oh boy, I want to hear that. Of course, when we taught Revelation, big turnout, Matthew, lots of people wanting to hear it. When we got to chapter 24, we were packed out two Wednesday nights in a row because we think, Oh, that's the important thing. Let me encourage you to consider the important thing, what the Spirit of God says is important. First and Second Chronicles are here because they are vastly important to the plan of God. He wants us to know them, to read them, and to be in them. Now, Wednesday night, we are going to come back and work our way through the genealogies in the first probably eight to nine chapters. It'll be the, we'll cover a, long, uh, a large amount of Scripture on Wednesday night. We won't be here super long, but we're going to cover it all. This morning, <laughs> what are you laughing at, Phil? <laughs> this evening is eight to nine chapters, Rick. There's no way. But this morning, I just want to reason something out. And that's simply this. Why does the Lord spend nine chapters on genealogy? Why nine chapters of name after name after name chronicling the genealogies from Adam through Abraham all the way to the end of the lines of the kings? Why is this here? Why is it... So important. Four reasons. Number one, a positional reason. A positional reason. The Lord is intentional about the specific roles and ministries of each tribe of Israel. And He lays those out in First Chronicles in these several chapters as it begins. The Father wants His people to know their places, their ministries, and their roles. The very first man and woman had their roles clearly defined. If we go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it tells us the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Adam wasn't just running around naked in the garden having a good old time. God said, I want you to be the gardener. I want you to care for the plants and the animals and the trees. I want you to look after this garden, to cultivate it, to grow things. That's why I want you here. That's your role, Adam. You are the first gardener. 
We're told in Genesis 1.26 that God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the cattle and all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And by the way, that is divine environmentalism. That is God's plan for the environment right there. We don't have to go somewhere else to find it. It's right here in Scripture. It's at the very beginning. We are to fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue it how? With righteousness. With goodness. With holiness. With the Spirit of Christ in us. The Lord would have us spread out. You know, I've talked about the contrast of Islam and Christianity many times. What's interesting is they are both religions of conquest. Islam is a religion of conquest that you either convert or die. You become one of us. And it's a conquest of land and and space. Christianity is a religion of conquest as well. Conquest of love. Come to Jesus and be saved. Come be a part of a family and be loved and cared for. Find the compassion and the grace and the mercy of Jesus. You really want to go green? Go God. But in the genealogies of Israel, after studying through all these, we find that the people were given very specific roles. If you flip over to chapter 6, 1 Chronicles chapter 6, down about verse 31, it tells us the following. Now these are those whom David appointed over the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark rested there. They ministered with song before the tabernacle of the tent of meeting until Solomon had built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem and they served in their office according to their order. And these are those who served with their sons from the sons of the Kohathites where He-Man, the singer, I like that, He-Man, was not a master of the universe, he was actually a singer. For those of you who followed that cartoon... The son of Joel, the son of Samuel. And it goes on down and lists all those whose role, whose job, whose ministry was the music before the tabernacle and ultimately before the temple. Verse 48 says, Their kinsmen, the Levites, were appointed for all the service of the tabernacle of the house of God. But Aaron and his sons offered on the altar of burnt offering and on the altar of incense for all the work of the most holy place and to make atonement for Israel according to all that Moses, the servant of God, had Commanded Specific roles. Skip ahead to chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 17. Giving some more roles of the people of Israel and what these different groups within these genealogies of Israel were supposed to do. Verse 17 says, The gatekeepers were Shalom and Akub and Talman and Ahiman and their relatives, Shalom the chief being stationed until now at the king's gate to the east. These were the gatekeepers for the camp of the sons of Levi. Down there at the end of verse 19, it says they were keepers of the thresholds of the tent, keepers of the entrance. In verse 22, it says all these who were chosen to be gatekeepers at the thresholds were 212. So we see the musicians, we see the gatekeepers, we see those who worked in the most holy place. All of these are ministries. And God is specific about positions for His people. Skip on down to verse 28. It says, Now some of them had the charge of the utensils of service, for they counted them when they took them in, and, they, and when they took them out. Some of them also were appointed over the furniture, and over all the utensils of the sanctuary, and over the fine flour, and the wine, and the oil, and the frankincense, and the spices. Some of the pre- sons of the priests prepared the mixing of the spices. Mattatiah, one of the Levites, who was the firstborn of Shalom the Korahite, had the responsibility over things which were baked in pans. Some of their relatives of the sons of the Kohathites were over the showbread to prepare it every Sabbath. And then it goes on again to talk about the singers and the heads of the fathers of the households of the Levites and all of the roles and jobs. Bottom line, gatekeepers, temple services, worship leaders were given these genealogies for a positional reason that God's people would know where they were to serve. And it's no different with the church today. The Lord has for us clearly delineated roles. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, There are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are a variety of ministries in the same Lord. A variety of effects, but the same God who works all things in all people. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Please don't miss that. We've talked about this before. Les is not here today, but Les is very big on this. And well he should be. 
Each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. There is not to be a one among us in the family of Christ who does not have a spiritual gift or spiritual gifts to use in the ministry of the body. We're not called... I, I don't find a single spiritual gift of sitting. You won't find it in there. The spiritual gift of showing up. Oh, he's got that gift because he's here every time the doors are open just sitting there. That's not in Scripture. But what is in Scripture is every single one of us have spiritual gifts to use for the body. And they may have nothing to do with this barn or a Sunday morning service. They may have everything to do with a gift you've been given that you play out in the workplace or at school or with, in, in social settings. You find you discover your gift in the Spirit of God. I guarantee you, ask Him. He has gifts for you. It's important to understand because there are far too many Christians who just don't think they have the giftedness to serve. And so they show up and they open their Bibles and they're faithful and they want to know the Lord, but they just, you know, it's kind of a self-deprecating look. I just don't have it to give. You're right. Neither do I. But the Father has it to give to you that you will have it to give positions in the church, roles that we are all called to. Now that being said, please listen, dear family. One of the most common things to mess up the common good of the family of Christ that stirs up strife in a church body is when we poke our noses into other people's positions. I know what my spiritual gifts are, but I also see His, and He's not doing it the way I would do it. He's not serving the way I believe He should serve. She's not doing what I think she should be doing. And precious people, when we compare or judge or think we can do it better, not only are we infringing on God's call on someone else's life, but we're missing out on our own calling. If I'm so focused on what everybody else is not doing correctly... Where's my focus on what God has called me to do? And my focus. Before Israel began to realize the roles and the positions that God had for them, this was their number one problem. We're told in Psalm 106.25, they grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. This verse cracks me up because it's exactly what happens in the homes of people in the body of Christ, isn't it? Let's just be honest. I'll be honest. It happens in my home, grumbling in the tent. Because it's just my wife and I, and my in-laws. I I try not to grumble to them too much. But I'll say, Cheryl, you know what's going on right now? I've got to tell you about this. It's okay, because we're one, so it's not really gossip. I've got to tell you, what's happening here, grumble, grumble, grumble. They grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. When I'm grumbling, when I'm judging, when I'm looking at other people, I can't hear God in my life. Now, I'm sure there's no real grumbling going on in the tents of the Bridge Christian Fellowship, but for the sake of discussion, the psalmist says this. He says, For this reason, Psalm 106.26, God swore to them that He would cast them down in the wilderness, that He would cast their seed among the nations and scatter them in their lands. For what reason? Because they were grumbling in their tents and not listening to the voice of the Lord. For the best way to cast down your effectiveness... Best way to scatter your seed among the nations is to grumble rather than to accept and function in the position and the role that God has called you to. He has a role for you. Find out what it is. Well, how do I do that, Rick? Ask Him. Ask Him. You know, He doesn't turn a deaf ear to a child who asks, He listens. And if you're not sure where your place is or what your role is in the greater kingdom, you say, Lord, show me my role. What am I supposed to do? What have you called me to? And you don't get an immediate answer. You ask again. And you keep asking. And I guarantee you God will show you the position that He has for you. Galatians chapter 6, verse 3 says, If anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he will deceive himself. He must, each one must examine his own work. And then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. And I have been guilty of this, gang, from time to time. I've looked out. I've said, Lord, why'd you put that pastor there? And why'd you put me? I could handle there. There would be a good place for me, Lord. And gently, every time I raise that question, God says, Ricky, 
He calls me that when he's disciplining me. Ricky, I've got you right where I want you. Find your satisfaction there. I have you where I want you. Find your satisfaction there. That's the great thing about God's position. For the people of Israel, for you and I, our our position brings our fulfillment. It brings great satisfaction into our lives. You know why Christians sometimes feel unfulfilled? It's because they've yet to fill their post. Fill your post and you will find great fulfillment. Now I understand if we were going to have a big ministry fair as soon as this teaching was over, this might sound like I'm just trying to drum up support so we can get some workers into the field. It's not what I'm talking about. Fill your post, the position God has for you, and you will be satisfied. Matthew chapter 24, verse 45, Jesus said, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. And that's what I want. I pray that when Jesus shows up is not in a moment of me being bored. I pray He shows up and finds me at work for the kingdom in the position to which He has called me. And gang, by the way, that's not a works-oriented mentality. It's purpose. It's your reason. It's my reason for being on this planet to be in service of Jesus Christ our Lord. Not because your work can lead to salvation. Jesus already did that. But that your work will bring satisfaction. And as I've shared before, the extent to which we handle our roles in this age will directly affect the roles that we're given in the next age. Revelation 1.6, He has made us to be a kingdom. Priest to His God and Father, to Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we see a positional reason for the genealogy. Secondly, we see a posterity reason for the genealogies. That is, in these genealogies, God clearly defines and lays out the posterity of David. First Chronicles chapter 3, if you look over there quickly, First Chronicles 3 verse 4. The beginning of chapter 3 starts talking about the sons of David, the family of David, and in verse 4 it tells us six were born to him in Hebron. And there he reigned seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years. I, I find that interesting. No big theological thing to it, but David reigned in Jerusalem 33 years, and that was the length of time that Jesus lived on earth. I'm not sure what the connection is. Maybe some of you can study that and find something out. Verse 5 says, These were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemaiah. Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon, four by Bathsheba, that's Bathsheba, the daughter of Amiel. And Ibhar, Elishama, Elipholet, Nogag, Nogath, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, Elipholet, nine. All these were the sons of David besides the sons of the concubines, and Tamar was their sister. Verse 10, now Solomon's son was, watch this, Rehoboam. Abijah was his son, Asa his son, Jehoshaphat his son, Joram his son, Ahaziah his son, Joash his son, Amaziah, Azariah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah, Johanan, Joachim, Zedekiah, the fourth Shalom. Verse 16, the sons of Jehoiakim were Jeconiah and Zedekiah his son, the sons of Jeconiah, the prisoner. And then it continues on to tell his son. And what we've just read there, if that list sounds familiar to you, is a list of the line of the kings of Judah. The posterity of David, the kingly line as it runs down through Judah. Something else that's different about First and Second Chronicles from Samuel and the kings. You will not find the line of the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, in First and Second Chronicles. It deals only with the kings of Judah. Some of the kings of Israel will be mentioned in their association with the kings of Judah, but now we're honing in simply on that family line, the line of David of the tribe of Judah and the rule that went there. Now, as we've seen in previous studies, these kings didn't do so well. In fact, only 8 out of 20 could even be considered good kings. But the line here and on down through the book is critical because in spite of human failure, we will see heavenly fulfillment as the Lord maintains and protects the line of Judah all the way down to a baby who will be born in the city called Bethlehem. Which brings us to the next reason for the genealogies, number three, a prophetic or prophetical reason. 
Why are there nine chapters devoted to genealogies? Because clearly exposed within, the Lord recorded the unbroken line of the seed of Abraham, the son of David, to the Messiah of Israel, Jesus Christ. This line is clear, and God wants to make it absolutely clear. You Bible students know this, we've talked about it much. That after A.D. 70, God closed the book for good on anybody being able to claim themselves as Messiah. Did you know that? That no man alive today could stand up and claim to be Messiah because there is no authoritative genealogical proof that he would be of the line of the King David. Or all the way back to the line of Abraham. Because after the destruction of Jerusalem and the fall of the temple, all genealogical records were destroyed. They were lost. And all human ties to the genealogies, even that we see written in First and Second Chronicles, are gone, lost forever. After that fall and after the destruction of these genealogies, no man could ever again claim with the authority of the requirements of the line of David to be the true Messiah of Israel. The last person who could claim that to Jesus. It ended with him. After Jesus claimed to be Messiah, God shut down the opportunity for any man to legitimately claim the same thing. And Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says, The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, how can we prove that? Because we have His genealogy. Verse 17 tells us all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, who is Jesus, 14 generations. And you know what's tragic to me? When people say, if Jesus really is God's answer, why didn't God make it more clear? Are you kidding me? It's not that God didn't make it clear in His Word. It's that we didn't read it. As we didn't take the time to open the book and see how absolutely precise and clear that the Lord is. And far too many Christians don't know how to answer that very question. Well, if Jesus really is, you know, God, how come we can't prove that? Well, we can. We follow the line that God preserved for us that's right here in 1 Chronicles. If we know the book, we take them to First Chronicles, and then we take them to Matthew, and then we ask people, how clear does the Lord need to be? We know Jesus is in the line of Messiah. Now there's one last thing I want to tell you this morning. Before I do, flip over to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Other end of your Bibles. Titus chapter 3 and verse 4. Where Paul is writing to young Pastor Titus, and he says, When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we will be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently, so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Now watch this. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Christian pastors, teachers have taken this verse and said, for this reason, I won't touch the genealogies in the Bible. Listen to it again. Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. What is Paul talking about here? Gang, he is talking about speculative genealogies that some were using to say that they were better than others. In the day, people were coming along and they were making up genealogies. And they were coming up with ways that they connected to the line of Messiah, trying to say that maybe they were Messiah, or trying to lead people down a wrong path. Foolish genealogies and speculations. It's kind of a Dan Brown sort of thing. You know, the Da Vinci Code. It's that, it's that bogus type thinking that tries to tie in myth with truth. These genealogies in 1 Chronicles are not speculative. They are not arguable. They are simply truth. And the Lord wants us to be familiar with them. 
See, while humanity speculates, the Lord illuminates. He makes things clear in terms of position, in terms of posterity in the line of David, in terms of prophecy. He has made it all clear to us. But lastly, in the record of the genealogies listed here and throughout Scripture, we see, number four, final thing, we see a personal reason. Why would God spend nine chapters in genealogy? A personal reason. These names as we read through them may be boring to you. They may seem repetitive to me, hard to pronounce. They may come across as tedious. But God remembers every single one. Everyone. We see a name. Arpachshad. How do you say that? God sees a person. God sees an individual. God takes it very personally. This is my hope, that we can get beyond what is scriptural and get into what is personal to our God and Father. And see, rabbis today, they, they teach that the names of every person ever born are written down by the Lord. They're written into a book. And David wrote in Psalm 139, verse 16, In your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. And while we might not care about these people because we don't know them, and all these names may just be names to us, God cares, and God says, These are mine. Isaiah 49, verse 14, Zion said, The Lord's forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. And the Lord responds saying, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. You remember the story I shared, I think a year or so ago, about a man who had his new infant son? I remember this this week because Cheryl was running down to the store and she was taking little David with her and she was putting him in the car seat and I said before she left, Now listen, when you go in the store, it's been a while, don't forget David's with you. Okay. He's out there in the car or something. There was a man who came out of the store with his baby in a baby carrier, set the baby on the roof, put the groceries away, forgot about the baby, got in the car and drove onto the freeway. True story. In Seattle, happened several years back, driving 60 miles an hour down the freeway, he remembered. And all of a sudden, as he tried to slow down, here comes the baby carrier right down the windshield across the hood of the car. He slams on the brakes. Off the baby carrier goes. And slid (laughs) upright for about 100 yards before it finally stopped. The dad pulled up, got out of the car. Baby was fine, not a scratch on him. God's got a plan for that child's life. (laughs) But even though a nursing mother might forget her child, God says, I won't forget you. The most intimate picture you can imagine, a a, a woman with a newborn. God says, even a mother might forget. I will not forget you. He says, behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Indeed, every name is written down on the palms of God's hands. He says to Israel, I know all your names. I read the list and I go, name after name after name. God reads it and goes, oh yeah, Seth. Seth. Love Seth. Enoch, we walked together. I just brought him on home. And Methuselah gave him a long life. He remembers and knows every name personally. A personal reason. I, I share that lastly here just to say that God keeps track. And not a single soul has ever been lost to his attention. Souls have been lost. Souls will be lost, but not a single one has been lost to his attention. And in fact, there's a genealogy, genealogical book I'm convinced the Lord looks at constantly. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And in it, names are written down. Revelation 3.5 says, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. At the end of the book of Revelation, John wrote in Revelation 21-27, And nothing, speaking of New Jerusalem, nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Here we have a genealogy of Israel, and of the people, and of the line of David and the kings. But there we have a genealogy of those who are born of the Father. 
As John wrote in John chapter 1, verse 12, as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Children of adoption. Which is what you are if you come into faith in Jesus Christ. It's been an interesting week in our house. And one of the interesting moments that happened, I was talking to my dad. My folks were in town just for a couple of days. And, and I was talking to him and he said, Oh, by the way, Rick, your Uncle Lens, my dad's brother, he, you know, uncle, brother, how that works. Your Uncle Lynn needs your kids' names, Anna Marie and, and Naomi and David. He needs their names. I said, well, what does he need their names for? Well, he's, he's keeping track of, of our whole family tree, and he wants to make sure and write them into the tree. And I just, I went, wow. See, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about these three children are coming in and, and becoming not just kids that we look after, but daughters and a son. Part of, of our family. Do you understand that that's what God has done for us? That your name being written in the Lamb's Book of Life is the adoption decree that was bought and paid for not by American dollars or Ghanaian CDs, <laughs> bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Every name matters to God. Father, We praise you and we thank you that you have chosen to write the names of all who believe in your book. God, I personally thank you that my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And I pray even as we begin 1 Chronicles, you would remind us again how how great your love is and how personal you take all of this. This is not religion to you, Father. This is not some kind of Bible study or head knowledge thing. This is life and eternity. And this is what You have called us to. Father, there may be some sitting here this morning who have yet to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, whose names are yet to be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I pray today the decision will be made. I pray, whether it's in this service or second service, Father, that someone who has not made that choice will say, Lord, I believe in You and I accept You as Savior. Write my name in Your book. Don't forget me, Father. So that when You come again, Jesus, I will go home to be with You forever. As we pray, if you're that person, if you've never made that decision for Jesus, I invite you just to pray with me in your heart to the Father, Lord Jesus. I confess my great need for You. I'm a sinner. And I need Your forgiveness and Your mercy and Your grace. And so this morning, I declare that I believe that You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I confess that You died on the cross of Calvary for my sins and rose again to call me to eternal life. And when You come again, I want to be with You. Lead me now this day forward. In Jesus' name. And brothers and sisters, would you pray in your heart to the Father if you have given Him your life. Thank You, Lord, for remembering my name. Thank You, Lord, for caring so much about me. Lord, that You would give me a position in Your kingdom. And Father, that You would take me so personally. I praise You and I thank You. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand up together.